Um, so again, welcome to Systematic Theology 2. Hopefully you all got a handout as you came in this morning. Uh, my name is Connor Davey. Thrilled to be here with you all this morning and to be teaching this alongside Sam Dawson and Cliff Hughes, who are both conveniently absent this morning. Um, but allegedly, they're also excited to teach this semester, although you wouldn't know by their presence this morning. Um, if you don't know me, my humor is very dry. If you think I'm saying something mean, I'm probably just kidding. So, um, Very briefly about me, my wife Natalie and I, here she is on the front row, um, have been members here for about five years. Uh, we're usually helping with high school kids, had the joy of seeing a lot of them grow in the Lord, and a lot of them just talk the entire time when I'm trying to teach, um, which is great. I work in the vendor world in Rogers. I sell cereal to Sam's Club, which is really fun. Uh, and my wife is the current reigning teacher of the year at Harbor High School. <laughs> and not only that, but the current reigning Whataburger teacher of the year. Um, we still don't know what that means, but it's true. So if you notice, this is Systematic 2. Um, if you're thinking to yourself, I was not here for Systematic 1. How am I going to know what's going on? I have good news. I also was not here for Systematic 1. Uh, and today, what we're basically going to be doing is doing a crash course review of all of Systematic Theology 1. Um, so that, that handout that you got at the back hopefully has all the topics that we covered last semester. And the plan is to basically just go into each of those topics very briefly uh, and then talk about them and then ask if you guys have any comments or questions. How am I going to teach a review of Systematic 1 having not been here at all? It's a good question. I don't know. Um, just kidding. I plan on relying on you all who were here last semester um, to just kind of add anything that I might be missing from any of these topics, any comments or questions uh, that came up as you were studying them last semester or as you've been studying them just kind of on your own personally. Uh, before we dive in, let's get a few things straight right away. Can somebody tell me what systematic theology is? What are we studying? Yeah, Nick. Yeah, that's great. Um, so just for the audio's sake, I'm going to repeat that. Uh, Nick basically said, it's a great definition, systematic theology is taking a subject out of scripture uh, and then asking ourselves, what does the whole of the Bible say about this subject from Genesis to Revelation? Um, I also pulled a definition off of wikipedia.com, and I will now read that. Systematic theology is a discipline of Christian theology that formulates an orderly, rational, and coherent account of the doctrines of the Christian faith. It addresses issues such as what the Bible teaches about certain topics or what is true about God and his universe. Um, but boiled down, systematic theology is taking a subject and seeing what all of scripture says about that subject. So we have, like Nick said, a coherent view. Okay, so we know we're all kind of on the same page about what systematic theology is. Um, second, what do you think are some good reasons to study systematic theology, and what are some maybe bad reasons to study systematic theology? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. So Joe noted that, uh, you know, good reasons to deepen our knowledge of who God is, um, that we might know him better and worship him, um, and bad reasons to, you know, pervert religion to your own gain, as so many in history have done. That's awesome. Anybody else? Good reasons, bad reasons to study systematic theology? Yeah, so Sam said that we all have theology in our heads. Cliff said last Sunday, and it's been said many times, you know, everybody's a theologian. The question is if you're a good one or not. Um, and so what systematic theology is trying to give us is a framework of how to think about God rightly. Um, so there's a few reasons that they gave last semester that we gave in bullets, um, and so I'll just quickly go into those. It's good to study systematic theology for God's glory. Um, you know, we recognize quickly in Scripture that everything exists for God's glory. Um, so that's a good reason to study it. Uh, it's also good to study it so we can corporately reflect Christ to one another. So as we're supposed to image Christ, the more we know about him and who he is and what he's done, the better we can reflect him to each other. Um, good to study it for personal sanctification and growth um, so that we can grow uh, in the knowledge of who God is, like Joe mentioned. And also, as Sam just mentioned, it's good to study it because doctrine matters. Um, your view of God, your doctrine of God matters. I don't think anybody's ever accused recent UBC of not caring about doctrine. Um, but it's true. Doctrine really matters. And how you view God affects how you live. Um, and a lot of these like second and third order issues, as we call them, have influence on first order issues. Um, and so it's important uh, to know that doctrine matters. But I think it's more important to remember as we go into the semester that the heart behind doing something like this, like studying systematic theology, uh, can be much more important than the actual content of systematic theology. So the study of something like this is meant to lead us to worship God in humility, uh, not get puffed up in pride at all the things that we know about God that others might not. So that's why that there, there's that verse on your handout, um, Romans 11, 33 to 36. You know, Paul, after going into a whole host of doctrine, just breaks forth in praise, worshiping God for how wonderful he is, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Paul is led to praise by his study of God, uh, and we should be as well. So, I th yeah, I think it's important to remember we're no better than Pharisees if we study systematic theology uh, to feel puffed up in our knowledge about who God is. Certainly, the study of a God like ours, if we recognize who it is we're studying, should lead us to humility uh, and not arrogance, and it should lead us to worship. So I'm going to pray now and just ask the Lord to bless this time and correct our hearts where they might be um, off, off of him, and then uh, we can dive into the content here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for who you are. Lord, we do pray as we study this semester um, that you would bless this time that our minds would be uh, enlightened to who you are and what you're like. Um, and Lord, we do pray that our hearts would be correct, that you'd correct them where they're off, um, that we'd want to study this for the right reasons, and that you'd give us hearts that um, yearn to know more about you, that we might worship you in humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So this is a long shot from last semester, but does anybody remember uh, some key features we talked about that systematic theology has? Like, what are some key features that it has? I recognize this is a long shot. 
or any that you might think of. Like, what should good systematic theology do? What are some attributes of it? Yeah. Yeah, that was actually one of the first things we talked about. So I don't know who taught that lesson, but we talked about how it should be biblically grounded. Um, it should be rooted in Scripture um, as, our, as our highest authority. So there's one, biblically grounded. Um, it should also be historically informed. So we want to know how the church has thought about these things through the ages. Um, not that that's authoritative uh, or, like, finally authoritative. But it is, in a way, uh, helpful to know. Like, if the church for thousands of years has decided God is triune, you're going against a lot if you're going to try to say that he's not triune. Um, you might be right. The church might be wrong. But chances are, probably not. Um, and you would need a pretty good defense from Scripture. So it should be biblically grounded, historically informed, uh, contextualized. So we don't want to just take a verse in a vacuum. And this is the whole point of systematic theology is you look at all of Scripture. Um, so you don't want to just take one verse and then base your theology or base something um, on that. And then fourth, systematic theology should be lived out. Um, so it should affect how we live. Uh, it should affect how we view God and how we view one another. So as we remember those things, Let's get to the topics. Does anybody remember any of the topics that we studied last semester? There's an easy way to cheat. They're all on your handout. Um, the doctrine of the word, attributes of God, creation, doctrine of humanity and sin, providence, person of Christ, and work of Christ. So again, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, this is a review. We're just going to quickly go through each of those topics uh, and and talk about some of the things we talked about. This is going to be fast-paced. It's going to be just a crash course of last semester. Um, so here we go. Doctrine of the Word is the first thing that uh, y'all talked about last semester, the doctrine of the Word. And I left some space there if you guys want to take notes um, in between each of those topics. So one of the first things we need to get grounded on and kind of make sure we're on the same page on is how we feel about the Word. Um, how do we feel about the word. There are a few forms that the word can take. Um, so first, the word as a person existed in Jesus Christ. Uh, John 1, we're going to reference that a lot this morning, but John 1 is very clear that the word was with God, the word was God, and that word is the Son, Jesus Christ. Second, God's word exists as speech. So he physically talked audibly to the patriarchs. Um, God's word exists as speech. And then third, the primary way that we interact now with God's word um, is through his word as text in the Bible. Um, those are kind of the three ways that God speaks through his word, and, and we primarily use the Bible. So we walked through the authority of the Bible. Um, the Old Testament is authoritative for many reasons, but one of the most compelling reasons as Christians is that New Testament authors recognize the authority of the Old Testament, including Jesus, uh, referencing it several times. Uh, and we talked about how the New Testament sees itself as similarly authoritative. So you have comments about Peter and Paul recognizing the authority that their letters had. Um, and we talked about the canon of Scripture, which basically just means which books are in the Bible, which books aren't in the Bible. And uh, so what belongs in the Old Testament, what belongs in the New, and how we know which belong there. Um, and we'll, we're going to kind of cover this as we get into God's providence. So men certainly make choices, and men decided... Uh, what the canon of scripture, what, which books were going to be included in the canon. At the same time, God is sovereign. 
uh, and has a deep care for his word. So we have to trust that the books that made it into scripture are the exact books that he wants us to have. We have everything he wants us to have and nothing that he doesn't. Uh, and then we talked about six characteristics of scripture. Does anybody know or can guess any of these characteristics of scripture that we might have talked about? Yeah, um, so that, that probably gets it like inspiration. Um, yeah, it, it comes from God's lungs. Uh, it's breathed out by God. Yeah, sufficiency. Great. Um, yes, inerrancy. So let me just quickly break these down. Um, inspiration, scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. It's our final authority in matters of doctrine. Uh, and we dare not veer from it. Inerrancy. Um, scripture does not err. It doesn't have error because God doesn't err. He doesn't have error. Uh, I recently, a couple years ago, recognized how closely the character of scripture is tied to the character of God. If he is without error, then the scripture is without error. It doesn't lead us astray because it is his word and his words are perfect because he is perfect. Infallibility. Um, scripture is also infallible. It's closely connected with inerrancy. Uh, but it doesn't fail us. It cannot fail us. Clarity. Scripture is clear. Uh, and Christians have held this throughout the ages. Even in places where we don't think it's clear, it is clear. Um, and God is not trying to trick us with Scripture. He doesn't, he's not trying to pull one over on us. So we talked about sufficiency as well. It's already been mentioned. God has given us everything we need in Scripture. We lack nothing. Um, and we should rejoice and be thankful to a God so kind. And then finally, uh, necessity. We actually need scripture to be saved. Um, Romans 1 tells us clearly that general revelation, looking at creation, is enough to make us acknowledge that there is a God, but then condemn us before that God. Uh, we stand condemned without special revelation, without God speaking to us um, through his word. Any takeaways or questions from you all on that first section of Doctrine of the Word? Any comments you'd want to add? before we move on to attributes of God. Okay. So then we talked about the attributes of God. We learned that God exists, first of all, which probably shocked most of us in this room. I heard that when the big reveal happened last semester and you were told that God exists, 30% of the class just left the room, never came back. That's a joke. All right. Uh, it's true, though. God exists. Um, and then we learn that not only does God exist, but he's actually chosen to reveal himself in a few ways. To all people, through general revelation, like we just talked about. So looking at nature, looking at the majesty of creation, um, God reveals himself. And then also, uh, to those with scripture, he reveals himself in special revelation in his word. We should be eternally thankful that God reveals himself. Recognize this is not something he has to do at all, especially to sinful, rebellious creatures. And yet God has decided to reveal himself to us. We should be very thankful. Uh, then we learned a few more attributes of God. So first of all, he's independent. Really, he's the only independent thing, um, the only thing that doesn't depend on anything else for his existence. Um, he's immutable, or he doesn't change over time, in other words. We should all also be thankful this is true or we might not be here 
right? God has always been merciful. He'll continue to be merciful. Uh, and that hasn't changed. He's immutable. And then finally, we learned he's infinite. So we can't really grasp any concept of eternity because of how small we are. But God is infinite. He's eternally large and eternally powerful. He's unstoppable. Um, so we learned that God is both like us and unlike us in many ways. And actually, it's probably better to say we're like him, not he's like us. Um, but he's both like us and unlike us. So we're made in his image. Yes, absolutely. But we're also very much unlike him. One of the ways that we are not like God is that he is triune. He has three persons uh, in, in himself. We learned about the doctrine of the Trinity. So Deuteronomy 6.4 clearly proclaims that there's only one living and true God. There's just one. One living and true God. Yet, verses like Matthew 28.19 show us that in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons. Um, so the problem, the so-called problem you have to deal with if you're going to try to get around the Trinity is the fact that Scripture actually describes all three of these persons as God. Um, and it clearly says that there's only one God. That's where the doctrine of the Trinity came from. So you're not going to find the word Trinity in your Bible. But you find the doctrine clearly expressed in that God is described as the only God, and then these three persons are each individually described as God. So to name a few places in Scripture where this happens, if you want to go uh, look it up later, the Father is God, uh, according to a bunch of places in Scripture, but Matthew 6, 9 to 13, um, is, is very clear that the Father is God. The Son is God, according to passages like John 1, 1 through 4, and Titus 2, 13. In both of those places, the Son is described as God. And the Spirit is God, according to places like 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. So again, the way around this so-called problem of like, we have three different persons described as God, but there's only one, is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Um, God and his Trinitarian nature. So the Trinity matters for a bunch of reasons. Um, not least of which is all the heresy that has arisen um, out of bad views of the Trinity. There's been a lot throughout the ages, um, and they continue today. So here's a few more attributes of the triune God. And I know we're moving fast, I'm sorry, but there's seven sections from last semester. Uh, one, he is omniscient. God is omniscient. 1 John 3.20 says that. He, so, in other words, he knows everything. Um, he knows everything that there is to know. Second, he's truthful. He is truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Titus 1, 1 through 3. Third, he is wise. He's got more wisdom than we do. Uh, Romans eleven thirty three, which is also on your handout, um, proclaims his wisdom. Next, he's holy. Uh, basically, any passage in the Old Testament you can recognize the holiness of God. Uh, but all of Isaiah 6 is a great place to turn there. Uh, he's just and he's righteous. Romans 3, 25 and 26. And he's goodness and he's love. Um, Psalm 100, verse 5, a bunch of other places. Any other thoughts or questions or comments on the attributes of God before we move on to the next section? Right.
So third, we talked about uh, creation. That's the next section there on your handout. Um, so we all need to agree that <coughs> that God created ex nihilo, which means from nothing. He created from absolutely nothing. The God of the Bible is the creator of everything known and unknown in the universe. Um, he is not, as the Mormons believe, in an infinite line of gods before him. Like, he didn't have a father who had a father who had a father. Um, he is God, creator of all. He's the one true God, creator of all from nothing. Uh, and we learn that he creates by his word and by his son, who is his word. So you can look again at Genesis 1 or John 1 uh, or Colossians 1.16 to validate those things. So he physically created our universe, and he physically created a literal Adam and Eve, um, which we hold to as Jesus and Paul hold to in the New Testament. So we learn that faithful Christians disagree about the age of the earth, um, and you'll find faithful Christians on, on both sides of this, uh, this disagreement. But faithful Christians should acknowledge a few things. Creation out of nothing by God, uh, a literal Adam and Eve, as Paul and Jesus both do, and the image of God being uniquely given to human beings um, as opposed to other creatures. So I think we really have an opportunity to show charity to one another in these issues um, where we might see a divide, where we might really disagree about how old the earth is. And like one of us is off by maybe billions of years. I mean, that's a pretty big mistake. Um, where we might see a divide, we can disagree and still maintain that unity in Christ. Um, so we have a great opportunity in areas like this to show the world what it's like to disagree well. Um, not by giving in, not by just giving in to the person we disagree with, but by loving and hearing and cherishing our brothers and sisters whom we disagree with while we still maintain our own views. Imagine how evangelistic we could be to the world if we disagreed with one another in a way where we didn't like finger point or yell or just call the other person Hitler right away. Um, which has become so commonplace in the, uh, in the political sphere today. That disagreement, our disagreement, would stand out in a world that's just very hotly divided. Um, so, okay. Again, as a, as a triune God, all three parts of God we should expect to see in creation. Um, so all three parts of God are involved in creation. Uh, we see the Son involved in John 1 again, and Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. The spirit involved, we see it actually in Genesis. He's hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. Um, so we learn that creation is distinct from God, and yet creation is dependent on God. So creation is not God, but it did come from God, and it's continually dependent on him. We learn that God created the universe for his glory and to display his glory, and even the inanimate creation displays the glory of God. We also learned that the universe that God created was very good. Uh, you see it was good repeated over and over again in Genesis. The material creation, uh, it's good to recognize, is very good in God's sight. Um, and so it's not, we should see it as good is my point. It's not good to just swear off all material things because God created material things and they were good. What we need to do is redeem those material things for his glory uh, and use them for his purposes. So then Cliff, uh, again, talked about the age of the earth, and he ended the debate there once and for all last semester. Um, just kidding, again. Tough crowd, man. Uh, again, not something we're going to finally decide here this morning. 
there are truly people I hope we would all respect on both sides of this argument. Um, but it's important to remember and kind of keep the main things the main things. God created ex nihilo or out of nothing. What he created was very good. We are his image bearers. Adam and Eve are literal people who parented humanity. Okay. Any comments or questions about creation before we move on? Sick. All right. Next, uh, we talked about the doctrine of humanity and sin. And when I was studying this week, I was like, how sad is it that you can just put humanity slash sin because it's like the same thing? Um, we moved on from creation to humanity and sin. So we talked about how humanity is made in the image of God, both male and female. Um, we should look like God in a small sense because we're made in his image. This gives dignity to every human being, right? This has huge implications for how we should treat one another. If you actually saw one another as fellow image bearers, uh, including the people you really dislike and wish bad things on them, uh, if you saw them as fellow image bearers, it would, it would really change how we treat one another. Um, we also briefly just stopped on the beauty of manhood and womanhood, um, how they're equal in worth, um, which, by the way, Genesis is one of few ancient texts you're going to find where man and woman are created equal from the beginning, um, and praise God for that. They're equal in worth but different in role, um, and in a culture that's continuing to push against this, uh, Christians are going to look increasingly strange in the days to come as we hold to biblical views of manhood and womanhood. We also learn that as part of image bearing, part of what we do when we image bear God is work and rest. We pattern him in this, in this way. We work and we rest. So it's important to us um, that we should work and try to work like God works. So at the end of the day, you can say, that was very good. Um, it was good. It was good after every day. Look, just like he did in creation when he worked in creation. Likewise, it's important to not work all the time. So it's important to rest. If God rested and he didn't need to, we certainly need to. Um, so in our work, we're usually prone to kind of two pitfalls, either idleness, like laziness, we get lazy at work, or on the other side, idolatry, like all we want to do is work. Um, and that's all we care about. Um, so we shouldn't be lazy, and on the flip side, we shouldn't just work all the time. We should be in a regular pattern of working quite a bit and then resting a little bit um, as we image bear God. So then we moved into sin uh, and talking about how sin is such a key feature of the biblical storyline. So understanding Genesis 3 uh, really has a huge impact on how you read the rest of the Bible. It's crucial for understanding the rest of the Bible. If you miss the holiness of God and the magnitude of sin before him in Genesis 3, you're going to really struggle to interpret difficult passages uh, or what our culture might call difficult passages uh, in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Exodus 29, God is giving Aaron instructions for how Aaron is allowed to approach him. There's all these commands about what he can wear, what he's going to have to make to put on him to come before God. Uh, another example, in Numbers 31, God commands Moses to just strike down the Midianites. He's like, man, woman, child, strike them down. They're done. I was listening to an atheist this past week um, who was very confused by passages like these, super confused. 
and brought them up in the following ways. Um, and I think it's because he didn't understand the magnitude of sin or the holiness of God. So he reads Exodus 29, where Aaron's given all these instructions about what to wear. And he says, uh, why does God care so much about how he's approached and what Aaron is physically wearing when he approaches God? That's weird. That's really weird that God would require this. And he reads Numbers 31, where God tells Moses to kill all the Midianites and says, what did the Midianites do? Aren't these innocent bystanders? Um, weren't they just minding their own business and now all of them are going to die? A proper grasp of Genesis 3, right, of the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God, it totally reorients how we view these passages, or it should totally reorient how we view these passages. So instead of us asking, why does God care so much about what somebody wears while they approach him, uh, we ask, how is it even possible that sinful human beings could come before a God? What a gracious God to make a way that we could come before him. Um, and instead of asking, what did the Midianites do to God? Aren't these people innocent before him? We, we instead ask ourselves, how is Israel even still alive when they're just as sinful as these Midianites? Uh, what a gracious God to choose a people or even choose a person and keep that people or person for himself. Um, so understanding Genesis 3, my point is, is crucial to understanding the rest of the Bible. So we talked about the meaning of sin. What is sin? It's missing the mark. Uh, it's wickedness. It's transgression. And then we talked about the coming solution to sin, which is Jesus Christ. You know, in the fall, a few things were on display as humans fell. First, we wanted to redefine our basis for knowledge. So we were asking ourselves, what is true? Why can't I decide what is true? Why does somebody external, why does God get to decide what is true? Can I not decide that for myself? Will I surely die if I eat? Um, is that actually true? So we wanted to redefine the basis for knowledge. We also wanted to redefine the basis for moral standards. Um, so we were asking ourselves, what is right? Uh, why does God get to tell me what's right or wrong? Why can't I decide for myself what's right and what's wrong? And third, we wanted to redefine the basis for our identity. Um, so we asked ourselves, who am I? Why am I not God? Why am I just like God? Why can't I be more like him? In the words of an old Lecrae song, I was created by God, but I don't want to be like him. I want to be him, the Jack Sparrow of my Caribbean. Rest in peace, old Lecrae. He had some great lyrics back in the day. Um, all right, seriously though, we wanted to overthrow God. So it's interesting we call it the fall, but the fall wasn't just like this slip, oops, we messed up. Uh, this was a usurping. We wanted God's throne for ourselves. We wanted to be God. Um, we weren't content to image him. We wanted to be him. Then we talked about where sin actually comes from. If sin is bad, but God created everything and everything is very good, how did sin actually come about? How did something bad come about? Um, we know that sin does not originate in God. James 1.13 makes that very clear. Sin does not originate in God. So where does sin come from? Um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a cool answer to this. And I think it's biblical, so I'm running with it. Um, Sam and Cliff aren't here, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> I'm just kidding. C.S. Lewis says, all sin is just twisting a good thing into a bad thing. Um, so God creates everything very good, 
And then he creates us with free will, and we can twist good gifts into bad gifts, into bad things. The easiest example, I think, in our culture today is sexual immorality. So sex is this great gift from God that he created. It's very good. And then we in our culture, we take it and we just twist it 30 different ways. And it comes out in profanity and profanity and profanity over and over and over. Um, so there's a, an easy example of how we've taken something good and just twisted it in on itself to glorify us instead of to glorify God. Um, so again, sin does not come from God, but from us twisting his good gifts for our evil purposes. Uh, and then very quickly, Cliff said seven statements about sin. I'm just going to read them right in a row. If you want scripture references for these, see me after. I'm happy to uh, give them to you. So here we go. One, we are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. You're counted guilty because of Adam's sin. Two, we have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. Three, in our sinful state, we lack all spiritual good before God. For in our sin, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. Five, all are sinful before God. Six, a single sin makes us completely guilty before God. And then finally, we deserve God's eternal wrath because of our sin. Any comments or questions on humanity and sin? before we move on to God's providence. Great. So let's move into providence. Sam, connect, did you teach this? You want to teach it right now? I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I should make sure I say the right things. Do you mind if I use the UBC statement of faith? Okay. Okay, good. That's great. Um, okay, here's what we believe about God's providence according to UBC's statement of faith. We believe that God, from eternity, decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free agency and responsibility of intelligent creatures. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's really concise and, and very good. Um, so there's three kind of avenues of God's providence that we talked about. Preservation, concurrence, and government. So I'm going to briefly walk through those. Preservation. God sustains and upholds all things. Colossians 1.17 says that in him all things hold together. So we take this for granted every morning, but it's because he's upholding the sun that it rises every morning. Um, he upholds it. The laws of physics are his, right? Preservation. Second, concurrence. God works in all things and through all things. Um, he works in a lot of different ways in scripture like this. He works through inanimate creation. He works through talking donkeys. He works through seemingly random events, through sinful humans, through all kinds of ways. So that's concurrence. And then thirdly, government. God rules and directs all things, including things like the affairs of nations um, and, and leadership in those nations. He governs all things. So there's a few things that the doctrine of providence um, should work within us. Worship, 
first of all, we should worship because we have a God who governs all things and a God who uses even sin for his purpose. Nothing escapes his great purpose. Second, trust, because all things will work for his glory and our good. That's what he's told us, and we can trust that they will because he's in control of everything. Third, patience, because he knows what he's doing and his timing is perfect. It's better than our timing, even when it doesn't seem like it. He is sovereign over when things happen. Fourth, gratitude, because nothing is too hard for him, and he can accomplish everything. We should be thankful that nothing is too hard for him. And then finally, hope, because he's the God who hears and answers prayers um, and has the ability to answer prayers because he's sovereign. Uh, And he will work everything together in the end. So we know from Scripture a few things that we have to hold as compatible, and this is called compatibilism. One, God is absolutely sovereign, in control of everything. And two, humans are morally responsible creatures. Both of these things are true. God is fully in control. Nothing escapes his power at all, not the smallest detail. And humans are not robots, and we make very real decisions that have very real consequences. That's compatibilism, which is very easy to understand. I'm sure you guys are all aware. Um, Now, truthfully, we could spend weeks here just on intricacies of how this all works, the in and outs. But if you read the Bible, you come away with both being true. Um, And so we have to hold them together as the Bible holds them together. Uh, They're not contrary to one one another. They're compatible in the mind of God, um, even if they're not in our mind. So I think a few examples that might be worth looking up here. Um, first, if you guys would turn with me to Genesis 45, uh, it's an example from Joseph's life where we can clearly see compatibilism. We'll do this in one other example. I think we got time. So Genesis 45 verses four through eight. Okay. I read Genesis 45, four through eight. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So what do you see here in verse 4? Joseph clearly says, you guys sold me into Egypt. It was you who sold me here. And then in verse 8, he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So both are true. His brothers sold him into slavery, and it was part of God's ordained plan that he would be sold, that many people would live, by the way. And this is even a foreshadowing of Christ. Um, And speaking of Christ, let's go to Acts now, uh, chapter 2. This is another very clear example of human responsibility and God's sovereignty working together in Acts 2. Acts 2, 22 to 24 is where we're going to be. Okay, Acts 2, 22 
24. It says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So that crucial verse is verse 23 there. Jesus delivered up, how? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all part of God's plan from the beginning. And yet, you crucified and killed him. Um, so humans are still responsible for the action. Uh, again, not an easy thing to grasp, but both are very clearly true, as, as Scripture teaches. So we should live in certain ways when we recognize the power of God's providence. We should look to the cross. The cross is the pinnacle of human responsibility uh, and God's sovereignty meeting. Right? This was his plan from the beginning, fulfilled to defeat sin, um, and we should look to the cross we should look to the end as well, knowing that he will fulfill his promises because he has always done so, uh, and he will continue to do so. We should also expect evil, knowing that God will allow evil and, and will use it for good in the end. Uh, and we should also never despair of evil or yield to wrong thoughts about God because he will use all uh, in the end. He's not powerless as we look to the cross in this matter, our wrong views should be corrected and put uh, on the right path. Any questions or comments on the providence of God before we move on? <laughs> Pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Parker was noting for the audio podcast that Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer does a good job uh, explaining why we should still evangelize if God is sovereign. Um, and he, yeah, he does a really good job. I th it's funny, that book is like 100 pages and it's like two chapters. The first chapter is like 10 and chapter two is like 70 pages or something. Like, I don't even know why you did a chapter break, but all right. Um, Great. Let's move into the person of Christ. Um, so we talked about providence. We got two more. Person and work of Christ. So the person of Christ. Earlier we mentioned that sin is the problem uh, and that Christ is the solution. Well, how is Christ the solution, right? Who is Jesus according to the Bible? What is he like? Um, we see in the Old Testament he's described as the son of man. He's described as the son of David. Um, and then in the New Testament, we see the deity of Christ all over the place. Um, we've already mentioned John 1 several times. Jesus is God, according to the scripture. Um, he's always been God, according to the scripture. He's presented as the pinnacle of the believer's faith and the pinnacle of our trust over and over again. Um, he's also presented as the object of our worship. So looking at passages like the wise men worshiping him in Matthew 2. Jesus is described as doing the very work of God. He's existed from the beginning with the Father, uh, prior to his incarnation. Again, a bunch of scripture we could point to here. Uh, and then if you know a lot about church history, you know the first few hundred years were a lot of it was focused on trying to get this balance of the Trinity right. 
um, and making sure we understand it right. They could see it in scripture. They wanted to make sure they spoke to it faithfully. So I'm going to read the Chalcedonian, Chalcedonian, Chalcedonian definition from 451 AD of the sun. And get ready. It's a lot. All right, here it goes. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same God, excuse me, one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That's one sentence. I mean, one sentence. That's a run-on sentence, right? I mean, that's not good grammar at all. Hopefully they didn't turn that into an English teacher. Uh, but still good stuff. Um, yeah, no, Paul definitely, they were modeling Paul for sure. Um so the deity of my, Meist, the deity of Christ matters is what is what this whole thing is getting at. The deity of Christ really does matter. If Christ isn't God, salvation itself is up in the air. Because only God could pay the penalty for us. Not only is Christ divine, but he's also human. And uh, this is known as either the hypostatic or hypostatic union, because I don't know how to pronounce it. Does anybody know how to pronounce it? Hypostatic? There it is, a hypostatic union. God is both divine and human. Christ is both divine and human. So again, he's not like us in that he's God. Jesus is God. But he is like us in that he's human. So when you read Job 9 and Job is crying out, like, I just wish there was an arbiter who could stand between God and man and have a hand on both. Christ is the arbiter who's come uh, to, and can have a hand on both man and God. He is the perfect savior that we need he's born of a virgin which um, many of us may not realize made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity uh, in one person had he been born of a man uh, he would have inherited Adam's sinful nature uh, and so the virgin birth actually uh, makes this possible um, he came from God and Mary not Joseph and Mary we also see his humanity in that he had human weaknesses and limitations so he got hungry he slept. Um, the difference between his humanity and ours is simply that he never sinned. Never sinned. He remained sinless, even though he was tempted in every way like we are. So the application of all of this person of Christ stuff um, is that we should worship Jesus as the God-man. He's the second better Adam, the only fit substitutionary sacrifice, the arbiter mediator between God and man our perfect example, our sympathetic high priest, the firstborn from the dead who will reign forever. Praise God. Here's Wayne Grudem. Uh, here's a quote from Wayne Grudem on this. Who, 
he literally wrote the book Systematic Theology. Um, the incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. It's good. Any comments or questions on uh, the person of Christ before we move into this last section on the work of Christ? Okay. Finally, the work of Christ. We learned about the work of Christ. Um, he is prophet, priest, and king. Foreshadowed through the whole Old Testament, through all Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings, he now fulfills. He's, he is the prophet, priest, and king. Uh, we talked about Christ's state of humiliation um, when he lowered himself to become human and live on, on, the, on the earth. Philippians 2, 6-8 says this clearly. Hebrews 2, 14-17 says he humbled himself by becoming like a man in his birth. Matthew 5.17 says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to God. Um, and clearly the greatest example of his humility is his sacrifice on the cross um, for sinners. So the atonement, us needing to be made one with God, was needed since Genesis 3. And Christ fulfilled it in his work. Um, we learned a few things about the atonement, what he did on the cross. First, that it was penal or that it was punitive. It was a punishment from God, um, and it was expressed in God's wrath being poured out on Jesus Christ. So it was, it was punitive. It was also substitutionary. In other words, it should have been us, um, and he took the place of us on the cross. Um, there are other decent views of the atonement that are not untrue, but this, this view of penal substitutionary atonement is probably the most complete one, uh, in my opinion. So because of this, penal substitutionary atonement, um, there are some glorious results for sinners um, who trust in Christ. One, propitiation. His wrath is taken away from us completely. Second, expiation. Our guilt is covered. And third, purification. We're clean because of this sacrifice. A few other benefits um, that should lead us to worship of what Christ did on the cross. Justification. We can stand righteous before the Father. We are justified before the Father because of Christ. Uh, redemption, we're redeemed. And reconciliation, we are reconciled to the Father as adopted sons and daughters. And victory, we're victorious in Christ over sin and soon to be over death. So Christ was not only in a state of humiliation, but he's also now been exalted um, since the resurrection. He's now in a state of exaltation. So this began with the resurrection, which does a few things for us. It ensures our regeneration because he's, he's risen from the dead. It proves our justification. We are righteous. Um, and it ensures resurrected bodies to, to come for us that will be without sin. Um, and I know many of us are young, but I'm not, I'm not saying I'm getting old. But like as I get older, uh, this truth becomes sweeter. And I think it will continue to become sweeter that I don't have to live in this body forever, uh, but that resurrected bodies are coming. Christ then ascended into heaven um, where he could send the Spirit to dwell with believers. We're going to talk more about that later this semester. Who is the Spirit? What does he do? 
um, and where he will intercede for us to the Father. Um, so Christ intercedes now in God's presence on our behalf, and his intercession is effective. We should praise God every day that we have an advocate with the Father who's there pleading for us, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And finally, he's coming again. He's coming bodily. He's coming to reign. Um, we will be glorified. We'll be in his presence. We'll be free from sin. We'll live in matchless joy, delivered finally from all that weighs us down, uh, and Jesus will restore the universe to perfection. Praise God for that. Uh, this work of Christ section is, is really the core of the gospel. Um, if you don't know Christ, I'd implore you this morning to trust in him and trust in this sacrifice um, that was given for you. Uh, and so as we talked about, the heinousness of sin, the holiness of God, and Jesus is the answer to how we can be reconciled and justified. Um, I would be happy to talk to you about that. After this, um, he will save you from your sin, from the wrath to come, and give you a new heart to obey him. Um, so please chat with me after. Any questions or comments on anything that we've talked about before we kind of just wrap things up here? No, it was a lot. Cool. Okay, this has been a lot. Um, I pray that it's been encouraging for you this morning. I was praying for that last night and this week. Um, and that this semester and this study will lead you to just be in awe of who God is. And again, as we move forward this semester, let's really try to keep the main thing the main thing. It would even be beneficial to just pray as you come in each week that your heart would be in the right place, that you'd be studying these things for the right reasons. Um, not get sidetracked, right? We, so we study these things for a lot of good reasons as we covered. But again, if we study to get puffed up with pride and brag to people about how we know big 50-cent words like penal substitutionary atonement, um, we failed, if, if that's why we're studying this. So all of this content should humble us and cause us to worship a God who's so gracious that he's revealed himself in his word so fully and so wonderfully, um, and that he sent his son to save us from our sins. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we've got to study your word and who you are. Lord, we do pray that this semester you would keep us humble and that as we dive into your word, uh, we would just become more and more humble. Um, Lord, you are gracious to reveal yourself. Thank you for doing so in such a comprehensive way. We pray that we would see the Bible for what it is um, and treasure it and that we'd come to know you better and glorify you better through this semester. In Jesus' name, amen.